get right to it. Let's let's go over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We've spent the summer slowly making our way through this chapter and we've talked at length about the benefits of believing God. And in chapter 11, verse 28 through 31, I want to teach a message entitled How to Live and Not Die. I want to give you four steps to living an overcoming life. Hebrews 11, verse 28. Through faith, we, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians tried to do. They drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Come on, help me sing, sing our prayer. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary. For you. In reading Hebrews 11, we've discovered that this really is a chapter about confidence, trust, faith in God. But we've also discovered that this is a chapter that is about testimonies and good reports, that the way we live determines what people will say about us. I've also told you that this is a chapter about vision, about the things that we see. You probably remember John telling you the story of Cliff Young, the Australian runner who completed a 544-mile ultra marathon in five days, and he broke nearly every record at the age of 61. There was nothing about him that would have led anybody to believe he could have won that race. I mean, he showed up with overalls and work boots on, but yet ran consistently, ran while people were sleeping, and ended up with a very large lead, and he won the race. And when it was over, they asked him, how is it that he was able to run so strongly? He explained that he was raised on a 2,000-acre farm, 2,000 sheep, And during the Depression, without a lot of money, he had to run the fields and the hills and round up the sheep. And he said for the ultra marathon, he ran imagining as if he had to round up the sheep before the storm came. Think about that. With every step he took while he was running, he had a vision before. Now, vision is a powerful thing. The possessor of it has insight that is hidden to other people. 
And sometimes when we consider what Hebrews 11 tells us, it says that Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He had a vision, an inward vision. Verse 13 makes it very plain that these people all died in faith, not having received the promises of God, but they saw them afar off, were persuaded of them, embraced them, confessed them. That is to say that they had a promise that they believed came from the king and they believed those promises would be fulfilled. Do you know that as we sit here this evening talking about God and worshiping God that around the earth, there are plenty of people that are persecuted for their faith. Folks that are meeting in rice fields, tops of mountains and valleys and jungles in huts, some in caves and out in desert places away from a mass of people so that their gatherings won't be known by a lot of folks. But even with all of that, they worship God because they have a promise of heaven and they have a promise of an eternal city and they live for that. They're willing to die for that because they're persuaded inwardly that the promise is true. And because they're persuaded of it and fully assured in their hearts, they have embraced the promise of God because they have a vision of seeing the king of kings one day. Vision is a powerful thing. It'll motivate you. It'll lead you. Now, we learn in Hebrews 11 that when God speaks to people and deals with folks' hearts, sometimes it's a personal and private thing. God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. He did not speak to all of Israel. The signs performed at the burning bush were not performed in front of all of Israel. Jacob was running from his brother who wanted to kill him. But out in the desert, a man laid down and used a rock for a pillow. God came to him in a vision and he saw a ladder stretching from earth to heaven. Angels coming up and down. All of his tribe didn't see that, but God talked to Jacob. Samuel was just a little boy when he was living in the tabernacle, and yet God called his name several times. He didn't realize it was God until Eli finally let him know, if you hear that voice again, say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. All of Israel didn't hear that voice, but God talks to people individually. Sometimes God can speak to you in a way that other people cannot hear. I know it's the truth because Paul was on his way to Damascus to arrest some Christians. And he had an entourage with him. And he was arrested by the presence of Jesus Christ in a glorious light. And the Bible says he saw the Lord, heard a voice, but the people with him didn't hear or see a thing. God talks to you individually. And he speaks to you in ways that other people may not even understand. The verses that I read to you give us four events or four episodes involving faith in God as well as a a, a reverence or fear of God. Two of them deal with Moses, two deal with Joshua. You have three miracles that have never happened before till they occurred in these days. And then one deliverance with Rahab That wasn't unique at all because God's in the business of delivering people that trust in him. However, I told you there are four principles or four steps I see in this to living and not dying, to living and overcoming life. And if you look very closely at verse 28, you'll find the first one where it says the sprinkling of blood. The first principle is simple. Get under the blood. Get under the blood. 
The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. God began to deal with Moses. and God used him to do signs and wonders in that land. Pharaoh's heart was hardened with every miracle God did. So the Lord finally said, look, I'm going to do something that's going to cause people's ears to tingle. They're going to be shocked by this. There's an angel of death going to pass through. And every home that has a firstborn child. It's going to be a lot of sorrow. But what I want you to do is tell the children of Israel, every home, get a lamb and preserve that lamb to the fifth day. On the fifth day, sacrifice that lamb. And when you do, take the blood and put it on the doorposts all around. And I want you to make sure that if there's a family that's too small, doesn't have a large number of people, let them combine with someone else because that lamb that is sacrificed has to be devoured entirely. I want you to eat it, consume it. So sure enough, that night when they had butchered those lambs, they took the blood. And can you imagine millions of people putting blood on the doorposts of the residents where they live? We're not talking about condominiums. We're not talking about beautiful homes. We're just talking about a place to lay your head. But yet that blood is going to be a sign to God that this place belongs to me and that angel is going to pass by. Well, sure enough, that's exactly what occurred. And the Lord had also told Moses to make sure you tell them that once they put that blood on there and they go inside, stay inside. Don't come out of that house. Once you're up under that blood, don't leave this sanctuary. Your home is going to be a place of refuge and a place of safety. On the outside, you're going to hear wailing. You're going to hear screaming, hysteria around the streets as the Egyptians are going crazy because of the death that is breaking out. But don't know one of you leave that house. You stay in there up under the blood. Well, of course, Israel had rebelled several times against Moses, complained about Moses and about God. But because of that blood, God forgave all of their idolatries, all of their stubbornness. And when they stepped into that house, it was like they were starting all over again. Do you realize that Colossians 1.14 tells us that we have redemption through him, even the forgiveness of sin? That when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you came out of darkness into light. You stepped into the kingdom of God, into a safe haven and a refuge. And that means for you and for me, we've come up under the blood. Because that blood has been applied to the doorposts of our heart. And under the blood, there's no guilt, shame, condemnation, none of that. All of us have done things we're sorry about. I'm telling you right now, there are things in my past I don't ever want you to know about. And if you were to know about some of those things, I'd be ashamed. And there are things in your past that you don't want anybody to know about. And if they knew about it, you'd be ashamed. But the one thing we do know is when we found our safe haven in Christ and trusted in the shed blood of Jesus, we came up under that blood and we were forgiven. The guilt is gone now. I don't feel bad at all now about my past because I know my past is just that. It's in the past. It's not in my future. It's not even a part of my present unless I'm using it as a testimony to show what God can do in redeeming people. Get up under the blood. And when you're there, that's where your liberty and your freedom is. So you could have come from a terrible home. 
You could have come from abuse. You could have been raised by liars and idolaters or atheists or people that really didn't love you or care for you in the manner that you would have desired to be cared for. But the Bible makes it very plain that in the kingdom of God, when you come to know him, when your mother and father forsake you, then the Lord takes you up. That blood brings security. That blood brings refuge, a safe haven to a to a wayward child that's in trouble. So the first step to an overcoming life, as you can see in verse 28 from that story, get under the blood. You'll be free. The second thing you can look and see in verse 29. It said they passed through the Red Sea. Now, this is important because I I want you to see this. You should step into your miracle. Step right into it. The children of Israel, when they were leaving Egypt, had borrowed all kinds of silver and gold from the Egyptians. Later, God uses that to build the tabernacle. Well, you've got to imagine millions of people leaving Egypt in a very hurried fashion. That's a lot of footprints going out there in the desert in the middle of the night. And no stoplights out there, no street lamps, nothing like that. But if you can imagine the combined populations of Nebraska and Kansas trying to make their way under the leadership of the elders of, of Israel, trying to go to North Texas. Imagine the kind of path that would be left in field after field as we tried to walk all of those miles. Well, this is what happened with the children of Israel. They all, under Moses' leadership, launched out into the darkness, into the unknown. They moved out into an area where they couldn't see a thing in the pitch blackness Walking forward and Pharaoh realized his workforce, his immigrant workforce had just departed. He told his commanders, get the army, go get them, bring them back. And all of them chariot wheels now are starting to roll in that in that wilderness. But God, as it says in Exodus chapter 13, it says that the Lord made the decision not to take them through the land of the Philistines, lest they see warfare. They weren't ready for war. They were slaves. They were, hadn't been battling or fighting. So the Lord took them through this meandering route that finally brought them to where they were face to face with the waters of the Red Sea. Mountains on either side. And in the middle of the darkness, with maybe a handful of lamps burning, they could hear the sounds of those chariot wheels. And when those Egyptians rolled up behind them and they got a glimpse of those angry faces with scowl on their countenance, the Bible makes it very plain the people were afraid. They again turned on Moses. And in all of that fear, they said, you brought us out here to kill us. And they're running back and forth. Imagine thousands of people terrified, running all over the place. And Moses has to get in a position where he can settle them down. And he said, stand still. See the salvation of God. Now, the only reason he has to tell them to stand still is because they're all over the place because of their fear. And it's at that point God speaks to Moses and said, Moses, what do you have in your hand? Sir, I've got a rod. He says, stick it out over the waters. And when he did, they weren't unfamiliar with the sound of the wind. 
But they surely had never seen anything like this before. That Bible said the east wind came blowing in there, swirling all around them, and pretty soon went straight through the Red Sea and produced walls. And then the Bible says in a few moments it dried that riverbed. And as the scripture teaches, they all passed through in the night. One night. That's at least maybe 12 hours or so, depending on when the sun set. Now, you've got you've to do the, the math in your mind with this. If you've got a few million people, and a few million people are going to cross the Red Sea in a night and, 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 and traipse across that little riverbed to get from this side to the other side in one night. That means that with that wind, God had to blow a hole in that Red Sea that was at least a mile and a half wide. For people to walk shoulder by shoulder, marching through. Now, they had a choice. They could have turned around and went and fought, probably lost their lives. They knew that they couldn't scale the mountains because they were too steep. The incline would have been too much for them to overcome. Before Moses stretched out that rod, they couldn't drink all that water. They certainly couldn't walk on it. But when that river opened up and the wind came through there. Now they've got a choice to make. What am I going to do? Do I stand here afraid or do I step into the miracle that God has provided? See? And see, a lot of people, when they're in trouble, they get afraid. And, you know, I see as as a pastor, a lot of people move into fear and fear will drive you in five or six different directions simultaneously. Because you can't control your emotions sometimes and your mind is wandering. You lost your job. How am I going to make some money? I've got to pay bills. Having problems in my marriage. There's trouble in every direction. What am I going to do? So on Monday, you believe God's telling you to go this way. Monday night and Tuesday, you believe God's saying go this way. Tuesday night and Wednesday, you believe you hear God saying stand still. Come Thursday, you believe God's told you to move to this place. Friday, somewhere else. At some point, you've got to stand still and wait for God to open up that door. He'll open it. And when he opens it, you have to be willing then to step into what God has provided for you. Because there are plenty of people that would never have entered into that Red Sea. Even with a wall of water on this side and a wall of water on that side, plenty of people would have looked and said, I know there are hundreds of people walking through there, but there's no way on this earth I'm going to try that. I'll stand right here and I'll cheer for all of you. Go, you got it. Yes, praise the Lord. But I'm not going. And there's some of them that didn't go because they were afraid. Now, it's it's clear then. That in walking with God, God won't always lead you along the easy path, but whatever path he leads you along, you've got to be willing for the supernatural things that happens. Leonard Bolton was a man that back in about 1915 or 16 was in high school and had a vision. And in a dream in the night, he saw what he says he believed was Jesus up on the cross And he said that in that dream, he started walking towards that cross and Jesus' hands came out to him like that, beckoning to him, just just came. He said that's how he was converted. That's how he became a Christian. Now, obviously, he had to have had some knowledge of the foundations of Christianity to even know something about the cross. But that's 
The moment he said he became a Christian and said when he woke up, he was right with God. Well, he went off to the war, was overseas, World War I. One night, he and his comrades were out at a particular location. Their area got shelled. His friends died. He was wounded, ended up in the infirmary in a tent somewhere back at the base camp. And he said while he was laying there again, he had that dream again. He said this time he saw Jesus hanging up on that cross and he said he started wandering to that cross. He said this time the hands came out to him, but he heard a voice that said, I haven't brought you this far for you to die. I'm going to preserve your life. He woke up and he knew in his heart and his mind, however terrible that war was. And with all the bloodshed that he had seen up until that point, he said, I know I'm going to survive and survive. He did. Leonard Bowden came back home. He wasn't a preacher. He was just he was a Christian that felt he wanted to give his life in service to God. And so he had heard different missionaries talk and he was trying to figure out what to do with his life. Do I go to India? Do I go to Africa? Do I go to China? Again, goes to sleep, has a dream. In the dream, there's a gentleman. I can't remember his name precisely. It was Lure or Brewer. This gentleman said to him in that dream, come over to the Tibetan-China border and help us. We need you. Please come. That's the dream. So he wakes up and he starts preparing to go over to China. Two weeks later, he hadn't known anybody over there. Two weeks later, he meets a woman who's the wife of the the, the person who he says came to him in the dream. So he starts putting everything together to go. He's got five years worth of gear that he's put together and he's got to take a ship. He takes the ship over towards Burma. And when he gets over there, he's got a caravan of 26 horses to carry five years worth of gear and equipment for being in mission service. Now you got to imagine once you get over there, you didn't come back and fly back and forth. You were there pretty much till you died. Well, as he was, Traveling week by week, a messenger or runner came to him after several weeks, gave him this message. In the message, it said, Brother Brewer, or whatever his name was, he was coming to meet you. But in the process of coming to meet you, he was crossing a a river that had somewhat swollen because of all the water coming through there. And he drowned. He drowned. And we don't know what to tell you. So now he's praying, God, what's your will for my life? I've come this far. What do I do? Then he realizes God showed him in that dream to be there. So he needs to continue. He continued on a few weeks later, still making his way towards that Tibetan border. One of his helpers who was traveling with him got malaria and died on the pathway. He's getting discouraged, but he keeps moving. He finally gets to the mission camp and he gives 40 years of his Christian life there on that Tibetan-China border. 40 years of service, 40 years of prayer, 40 years of walking with God. Now, here's, here's the thing. God didn't lead him along an easy path. He had to face death, bandits, marauders, thieves, robbers. He had to travel across mountains with horses, donkeys. 
Everything else, fighting all kinds of disease, resisting all kinds of disease. The man that he saw in the dream that told him to come died in the process of coming to meet him. But yet God used that man to replace the man he knew would end up dead. God doesn't always lead you by an easy way. But because the man had a vision, notice how God led him. Step into your miracle. What if he hadn't followed that dream? What if he'd never gotten on that first boat? What if he had given up when the the man that was coming to meet him would have left? Uh, What if he would have turned and gone in a different direction? But because he didn't, he gave four decades of his life to preaching Christ. Second principle is simple. Step into your miracle. What has God provided for you? Look at the next verse. It says here, with regard to the walls of Jericho and, 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 and Rahab. And I'll start with Rahab first in verse 31. And, and you can find a lot of this in Joshua 2. But the third step is, is very simple. Believe the promise. Here's a woman that was a harlot. God only knows how many people, how many men, how many folks she had been with. But yet... When Joshua sent some spies into the land, they ended up at her place. She lied to conceal them. She hid them in a rooftop. Then later said, go into the mountains, wait 72 hours before you turn back and head home. And and, and she said, look, because I've helped you. Is there there anything you can do to maybe remember us when you guys are coming? Because we've heard about your God. We've heard about his great exploits and our hearts have melted. We're afraid. We know even though we're acting like we're courageous, these folks around here know your God is a mighty God. And they said to her, you make sure this cord that you just let us down, you Letting us out of this window with you hang this out of your window when we come back and you make sure all of your family, your friends, whoever's close to you that you want to be delivered. You make sure you get them inside this house. Now, can you imagine a harlot's home became a safe haven? Became a place of deliverance, victory and peace. And I can't imagine what was going on in that house when there's trouble all on the outside there. And what they were in there talking about. But I can tell you this, with all that running around, Joshua had given the command, wherever you see that scarlet cord hanging down, you make sure you get there and you rescue all of them people. Don't you harm the hair on anybody's head. It's in that house. But they said to Rahab, if any of your family and friends step out of that house while that battle is going, that blood's going to be on their head. You just make sure they're in the house. Well, considering that Rahab's family likely never liked her lifestyle, you then can see how maybe hesitant they possibly would have been to even go to her place. Nevertheless, this woman who was a harlot had changed in her heart towards God once the two spies had come and they promised her she'd be delivered. What did she do? She believed the promise. She believed the promise. Do you believe the promise that God has spoken to you, spoken over your family, spoken in your life as it relates to your deliverance and your salvation? Them Jericho people were running around there thinking they were stronger than the Israelites. But I'm telling you now, the arm of the flesh will never be stronger than God. Never be stronger 
than God. But it teaches us that a person whose lifestyle has been so vile, so vulgar, in a moment, their life can be changed and they can become an instrument of deliverance and salvation. Yeah. You think about the worst wretches in this planet, the kind of people you do everything you can to keep your kids from even sitting next to to have a conversation with. You think of the kind of people in the community whose testimony is so bad that nobody wants to spend any time with them. But in a moment, God can change their life in a moment. And some of us in here, we we fully appreciate the grace of God because the Bible says to whom much is forgiven. Loveth much. Yeah. Loveth much. Everybody wasn't raised in church. I wasn't born in a Sunday school room. I was raised in a sinful house. Mom and dad didn't know God. I can tell you one thing. A house that's filled with sin and a house that has memories of terrible things can become a safe haven of the blessing of God once we allow God to come in and change us. That's what happened with Rahab's home. A place of harlotry became a place of salvation. Get under the blood. Step into your miracle. Then thirdly, with Rahab, believe the promise. But Look again at what verse 30 says. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. You can find this in Joshua 6. But this is a simple step. Surround your problems with praise. Not difficult at all. Surround your problems with praise. Those spies came back and told Joshua, I think we can take that place. And the Bible says with regard to Joshua, said, the, 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 the area of Jericho was shut up completely. The children of Israel had laid siege to it so that nobody could go in, nobody could go out. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given to you Jericho. Now think about that. I've given to you Jericho. Now he's not inside Jericho. He's not even outside surrounding Jericho yet. But yet God said it's already yours. The men and women of Jericho likely have spears and bows and arrows and they're ready to fight. They are prepared for battle and they don't even know they're already defeated. Men are standing on the wall as watchmen ready to guard their city. And God has already told their enemies they're defeated. And it's not a plan that's simple. It's not the kind of thing that the, the natural mind would come up with. If I'm thinking about how I'm going to take a village or a city, I'm probably not going to try this. Yeah. You understand? If, if, I, if I'm trying to conceive in my mind, okay, how in the, in the world am I going to conquer Belvedere? This usually is not part of the game plan. No. See, <clears throat> but God's plans are so much bigger and better than ours. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are greater than our ways. And he takes the foolish things to confound the wise. And he says to Joshua, you get the priests, 
You get some of the trumpet players and then you get the children of Israel behind them. Folks are going to be carrying that ark. And I want you to go and march everybody around the city during the daylight hours. I don't want anybody to make a sound. Just march around that city and then somewhere towards the end, just have all the horn blowers blow that horn. Now, of course, you, you've got to know that the men of Jericho and the women looking through the windows and through the doors, they're looking out here and they're saying, I told you these Israelites were crazy. I mean, sure enough, they're out here walking and they do their little stroll around the city. And then finally, when they get to the end, everybody retreats to their camp and the people in Jericho are scratching their head. What is what kind of a battle is this? Second day they did that all the way for six days. I mean, I'm sure them people on the inside were saying, is that all you got? Here we are. Bring the battle to us. Is that all you have? Well, they did it for six days. Seventh day, God had told Joshua, when you get everybody out there, this time you're going to march around that thing seven times. Oh, we're really going to look foolish now. Seven times you're going to march around. And when you get around this time, you're going to blow the horns. And I want everybody lift their voice and shout. Now, it doesn't even tell us what they shouted. We just know they made a whole lot of noise. And when they marched around that first time, second time, them people are staring at them, wondering what's going on. But finally, on that seventh time, when they lifted up that voice, all the men up there along the walls suddenly realized there's a shaking taking place. And the Bible says the walls collapsed. and Nobody had fired a shot. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. Yeah. But, but isn't that like God? If, if God's going to bring deliverance and bring a blessing into your life, isn't it just like him to do it in a way that you yourself, you've never seen it before? Because if all God ever does is what you can conceive in your mind, then you won't ever believe that God is as big and as great as he really is. But if God does a new thing, Something you cannot imagine, then it's amazing. Just like in Ephesians, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or what? Think. Your biggest thought can't contain God. Biggest plans you have can't contain God. So you got four steps to live an overcoming life. You got to be willing to get up under that blood you got to be willing to step into that miracle and not be afraid. Certainly, you've got to believe the promise of God for your life, but then you've got to surround your promise with praise, a shout, not a complaint, not murmuring. Don't spend your time complaining about what God isn't doing, what you're not seeing, upset and angry because you haven't experienced what you want to experience. You know what you ought to do? Praise God and worship him. Returning to the story of the parting of the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted. Miriam gets to the other side. She grabs a tambourine and she leads the woman, women in praise and they follow her around dancing and glorifying God. Now, all of us have seen people with tambourines in churches before. I've seen people in tambourines in churches before. There's nothing worse than somebody with a tambourine in church that doesn't know how to play it. And my wife will tell you, I have made tambourines disappear. 
And people are running around. Pastor, have you seen the tambourine? I, I just, I don't see it right now. I don't know. I long ago got rid of that thing. But, but here's the thing. When the miracle happened, they came over here and they were dancing and praising the king. But what if they would have did that before the Red Sea parted? What if they would have praised God before they stepped into the Red Sea? They had the right song. They just sang it on the wrong side. So what about your own life when you consider what you're facing right now? Whatever problem, whatever obstacle, whatever challenge, why not just start praising God and worshiping him? Now, this isn't a big setup to get you to do a Jericho march around the church today or to get you screaming and shouting. But it is a setup to let you know that you need to open up your mouth and praise God. Because nobody's going to praise God for you. And as long as you have a problem, you should surround that problem with praise. Yeah, all the time. Don't ever let your problem become bigger than your praise because with your lips you can magnify God and you have to make a choice. I can magnify God and make him bigger than my problem or I can continue to talk about my problem and make it bigger than my God. And if your problem is bigger than your God, I can promise you right now, you can't even see your God. And without being able to see your God, you don't have a vision. You don't have vision. So you go, you go backwards. So let's stand on our feet. And that first song that we did with a thousand hallelujahs. Play that again.